0: So what's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan Rice. I'm one of the pastors here at at Renaissance. And first, I just want to welcome everybody into our very first Easter service here at Renaissance. (laughs) Give it up. It has been an incredible uh, six and a half months uh, journey so far since we launched publicly and every single Sunday I'm more amazed, uh, not necessarily by numbers or anything, but what uh, the stories we hear in the community. Uh, If you're new here to Renaissance, these are some amazingly cool people, right? So in the hallway you can just talk to some strangers, some just random people, and they'll talk to you and they'll actually be interested in what you have to say. So please make sure that uh, you check them out. Uh, But for a lot of you guys, depending if it's your first time, I just want to let you guys know, we're really casual, we're really laid back here, uh, which is actually pretty different than the way I grew up on Easter, right? So I grew up on Easter every year, every Easter. What do you get? New Easter suit. So here's a picture of me from about 1986, 1987. (laughs) Withholding nothing. Now, for the record, for the record, I was extremely excited because I picked that outfit out. (laughs) My parents let me do that. But secondly, uh, those pants are not pink. They are red and white stripes, (laughs) right? My brother and I look like politicians or used car salesmen. (laughs) But for a lot of you guys, if you're new to church or if your church is not really your thing, hey, I bet one of the things you don't like the most is the fact that Easter tends to be a spectacle or church in general tends to be a spectacle. Uh, so I really wanted to spend a little bit of time today talking about what this is all about. Like, what is Christianity all about? Why are we here today? Why did everybody come out to celebrate this today? I think it's only about three words. Three words. That's all you have to remember is these three words. And I promise you they'll, they'll make sense later. Lost. Found. Party. Right? Lost. Found. Party. Now, most people forget about 90% of what they hear in the message, but even if you uh, can only remember 10%, you can remember these three words, lost, found, party. Years ago, uh, during Hurricane Sandy, there was a boat, the HMS Bounty, and uh, during Hurricane Sandy, the captain of the boat had uh, a dilemma. He had to make a decision whether or not he would keep the boat at, at shore, at the dock, and risk it being ruined by the hurricane that was coming. or he can take the boat far out in the ocean and hopefully he would miss the hurricane that way. Now, the, the captain decided to do the latter. He, he took the boat all the way out to the middle of the ocean hoping that he would skip the hurricane. And even though I'm not an expert in sailing or anything like that, I've seen Gilligan's Island, right? And I know that a boat is no match for a hurricane. And what do you think happened to that boat? Exactly happened and that boat sunk. Now, for about a couple of hours, there were seven men and women that were stranded about 50 miles away from land in freezing cold water. And while they were sitting in that water, they heard the sweetest sound you could ever, ever, ever hear, and that's the blades of the helicopter coming towards them. See, somebody had known where they were. And one of the guys who got rescued describes it like this. He says, the Coast Guards came down and picked us up, and one by one, we all got on board, and every single time somebody else came on board, they cheered louder and louder. See, lost, found, and the only sane response is to celebrate, It's to party. Now, I don't know when the last time it was that you lost something. Uh, I lose my keys every other day, right? Anybody else like me? like me? And I do what any sane man would do, I blame my wife. I say, you must have moved my keys because you're trying to control me, and I'm not going to let you I ain't going to let that happen. And She asked me the same question, where did you have them last? I said, they were in my pants, but I checked them already. They are not there. She goes in the room, and seven seconds later, she comes out with the keys in her hands. Now, you would think that I would be embarrassed by that, but actually I'm not. I'm usually so happy. I'm doing a happy dance that I found my keys because the only thing that makes sense after something that was lost is found is to party, is to celebrate. Now, in Scripture, we see Jesus telling a couple of stories that I think uh, de- describes and explains almost all of Christianity. Now, these three stories come from the book of Luke, uh, the 15th chapter. If you have your, your Bible, your Bible app, uh, please take that out right now, and you can turn to Luke 15, and you can keep it open. Uh, we're going to kind of be sitting here for the, for the whole day. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. We're not going to be here for the whole day. Keep it open. We'll be here for the next uh, little bit. So Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, "'This man welcomes sinners and eats with them.'" Now, let me stop for a second. The Pharisees were a group of really religious people. They were the people in society that dressed up and put on all of this this religious garb, and they were the people in society that were supposed to be the godliest people, right? So think in your mind who was supposed to be the godliest person in society. It could be a a pastor or a priest or something. These people were the hyper-religious. And when Jesus came to the scene, they they were frustrated with Jesus. Not because Jesus himself uh, did anything specifically that that rubbed him the wrong way, but Jesus started to hang around with the people that were sinners and they were tax collectors. Now, tax collectors might not sound like a bad thing, right? Like, I hate the IRS, I hate paying taxes, but tax collectors are not that bad in our day. But to them, this was the most controversial group to hang out with. See, these were Jewish people that were stealing from Jewish people to give to the Romans. These dudes were traitors. These dudes were hypocrites. These dudes were the lowest of the low in society, and Jesus had the nerve to hang out with these people. Not only that, but he's hanging out with a bunch of other people that they would never hang out with, and the Pharisees started to murmur and to mutter, like, how could Jesus, who's supposed to be godly, hang out with these people that are anything but? So Jesus stops, and he looks over, and he hears hears the muttering, And I believe that the reason Jesus starts to tell this story is because he knew that the Pharisees didn't understand God in the right way. So he starts to tell a story so that you and I and the Pharisees could understand how God works. Because obviously, if you were worried about who Jesus was eating with, then you have no idea who God is. Like, if this upsets you that he's hanging out with Pharisees and tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes, if that upsets you so much to your core that you deny that he's even a godly person, then you obviously have misunderstood God completely. So Jesus starts off uh, with a story, a question. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on her shoulders and goes home. Then he calls home to his neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Lost, found, party. The second story is pretty similar. Uh, Jesus says, Or suppose that a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friend and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lost, found, party. Party. Now, before we get to the third story in this chapter, I want to address a word that Jesus mentions here in the text, and depending where you are in your spiritual journey, this word might offend you a little bit, uh, and Jesus talks about uh, there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents, and, th- and that word, especially in this context in today's age, is offensive because uh, generally we ascribe that word to one type of people or these people who do these things, and we tend to believe that we're, none of us are sinners, we're just good people who every now and then we mess up. Now, what Jesus was saying here isn't that you are all good people who occasionally mess up. Uh, what Jesus is saying is this, and he, he wasn't using it uh, as a derogatory term. He was saying essentially this, all of us miss the mark. All of, us, uh, all of us need help. All of us need a savior, and guess what? This is not something that happened accidentally. Uh, this happens because it is a part of your nature, right? So the easiest way to think about it is anybody with kids. Anybody have kids or been around young kids? Right, if you're around a two-year-old long enough, you'll start to see how deceptive they can become, right? (laughs) They just start lying out of nowhere. Your husband blames you, you blame your husband, like, where'd they learn how to lie? No kid ever needs to be taught how to lie. It's in her nature. Like, no kid ever needs to be taught how to be selfish. Nobody ever says, now, little Johnny, when your brother tries to take your toy and share, I want you to slap him in the face, and I don't want you to share, okay? (laughs) Nobody ever has to do that right? Because kids, by their very nature, they're selfish. And when Jesus calls us sinners, he's basically saying is this, by your nature on your own, you're incomplete. By your nature on your own, you're not going to hit the mark. So this is what Jesus is is talking about. So he gets to the third story, and uh, this third story packs a different different punch, Um, mostly because a lot of us have a lot of different ways in which we think about God. Now, if I were to ask you the question, What do you think God thinks about you? What would you say? What do you think that God thinks about when he thinks about you? When God thinks about you, if if your name was across God's mind right now, what would God think? Now, how you understand you is going to determine how you see God, right? So there's three different ways that most of us normally see ourselves. Most of us see ourselves in the first way is we think that God sees us, in the way that um, what I think about me. We think that God thinks about us the way I think about me. So if you're having a great day, uh, if you have done everything right, if you have crossed all your T's, and you have dotted all your I's, you start to think that God must be pleased with how you're doing, because you're happy with yourself. So ultimately, obviously God has to be pleased with you. If you're a Christian, it normally goes like this. You woke up early, uh, you read your Bible, you did the dishes, you uh, worked out, you didn't eat bacon, you had turkey bacon for, for breakfast instead, <laughs> and you did all of these wonderful things throughout the day, and you come to the end of the day, and you sit down on your couch, and you say, wow, that was a, that was a great day. God must have been, God must really love me today. That must feel really good. You're welcome, God. You're welcome. Well, secondarily, uh, a lot of us, we think that God thinks about us the way other people think about us. Now, in every single relationship you have, uh, at work, at school, in church, with your romantic relationships, in every single relationship, people judge you and they put you in categories and boxes based on how you act. If you act one way, they'll treat you one way. And almost, this is almost a unilateral rule for everybody. We treat people based on the way they act. And your friends are your friends because of the way people have acted and the way people treat you. So naturally, we start to think and that stuff starts to seep into our theology and we start to believe that God must treat us or God must think about us in the way that other people think about us. And the third one, which is the one I struggle with the most, is we think that God uh, thinks about us based on how well we perform, right? We think that God thinks about us based on how well we perform. Now, if you want to be liked in this country, you should just do something really well, right? If you want to be uh, loved, you should be able to sing really well. You should be really good looking. You should be able to throw a football 100 yards or be really uh, popular, and people will treat you like you're God on Earth. There's a YouTube video of uh, of Beyonce at a at a concert, touching a fan on the hand, and you would have thought this dude was having a seizure. He was like he almost collapsed just because Beyonce touched his hand. Now, anybody in the beehive, don't attack me later. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that Beyonce is not the greatest person ever besides Jesus. I'm just saying this to prove a point. So please don't attack me later. Um, but the reason this fan went crazy and, and starts to convulse and go crazy is because in our culture, we worship celebrity. There's a lady that uh, got a, a tattoo of Colin Kaepernick's, uh, the quarterback from the 49ers. She got a tattoo of his signature on her arm, like right on her forearm. He signed it, and then she went directly to the, sh- uh, to the tattoo shop to get it tattooed on her forearm. That's ridiculous. <laughs> right? If he was a Jet, then maybe, right? But not, <laughs> not for the 49ers. Now, most of us are engrossed in this. We're all a part of this culture, and guess what? That stuff starts to seep into our theology. We think that since these people do things that are really well and everybody loves them, then certainly, if if we want God to love us, we have to do things really well. We have to measure up. And to be perfectly honest, man, I've spent my entire life trying to measure up. I can't think of a single period of my life where I haven't tried to measure up, whether it's trying to measure up in the classroom or measure up to my parents, or measure up on a basketball court, or uh, measure up in a courtroom, or measure up even now as a pastor, as a church planter, wanting to prove myself based on how well I perform. But what if God doesn't take his cues from how he thinks about you from you? What if God doesn't take his cues at all based on how society judges us, or how other people judge us? What if God has a much different set of criteria altogether? And this is why Jesus came, and this is why Jesus starts to tell these stories, because Jesus wants us to throw out that entire paradigm. God does not take his cues from you. God does not take his cues from other people. God does not take his cues from society. He looks at us in a much different way. So how does, how does God see us? It starts out in this third parable in Luke 15, verse 11. Uh, and a lot of us who have uh, been around church, you might have heard this story before, And it's most traditionally called the story of the prodigal son. Uh, And just for a really brief second, I want to, that's not the best heading for this story. Uh, See, when the Bible was written, when Luke, uh, the author of this gospel account, wrote this story, he didn't write it in with headings and chapters and verses. He wrote one long piece. And then later, hundreds of years later, when people were translating it, uh, they put in headings and they put in chapters and they put in verses so that people like me would we'll be able to stand on the stage and say Luke 15, 11, and everybody turn to it, right? It makes sense. It's functional. But the heading that they gave this story is not the best one. This story is not about a prodigal son. This story is about a father with two sons, right? This story is about a father with two sons, and this is how the story starts. It says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So, he fought, so the father uh, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all together, got all got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Now, here's something that's really interesting about the start of the story. Right? So, in the previous two stories, Jesus was establishing this pattern of what it means to be lost and, and what it means to be found and what it means to rejoice and celebrate and party. And when Jesus wanted to use uh, an example from a, a story on how he could describe the human condition of lostness, he didn't talk about a murderer or a rapist or somebody that everybody would say, "Of course, that guy's lost." Years ago, I worked at uh, Sing Sing prison, and I, and I did uh, Bible study and chaplaincy work there for a year. And almost every single time I told somebody I was teaching at a prison, uh, they would always say, "Man, those guys—they need it. They really need it. They lost." And we have this this thing in our minds that makes us feel like, oh, those people, those criminals, those people who have done really bad things, they're lost, but not me. And here Jesus doesn't use any of those examples. He uses a a son. He uses somebody that basically says this, I want to do life on my own terms. So when Jesus is describing uh, what it means to be lost, he's saying that lostness is this, wanting to do life on your own terms. Give me my share of the estate and let me do my own thing. So as soon as the son, uh, he, he gets up and he goes, and the scripture says he goes to a distant country, right? He goes to a distant country where nobody wanted to go. Uh, he went to Staten Island, right? <laughs> I said it, but you guys were thinking it. Nobody's going to Staten Island today. I hope, I hope not. Sorry about that. Sorry. Sorry to the one Staten Islander. And as soon as he got to Staten Island, it was turn-up season immediately, right? It says he got there and he squandered all his wealth. He was, he was balling. Basically, all of us right now have friends who just got their tax refund, right? <laughs> and your friend that just got that tax refund, you can't tell him nothing because he is making it rain. He's spending it, new kicks, new everything. He's looking fresh. And this is what the son was doing. But uh, my, my, I think my uncle used to say, a, a fool and his money soon depart right? A fool and his money soon depart. And as fast as it came to him, it went. And he squandered all of his money. uh, And it said that he went out and had to hire himself out to a countryman. And this dude was working with pigs. So he goes from living in his father's estate where he ate great meals. And he goes, and and it says in um, verse 15, it says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And this is the most messed up part. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. Now, basically, he was so hungry, he wanted to eat stuff that wasn't even edible. Think about the worst food possible. Basically, if Jesus were telling this story today, he would say that the son wanted to even go to Applebee's. Like, that's how how desperate he was that he would have gone to Applebee's. But eventually, 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 he realized, he realized that he was really bugging. Like he says uh, in, in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, here's something where I really agree with the son and I really disagree with the son. Basically, he's saying two things. He's saying, I've come to my senses. I realize that life apart from my father isn't all what it's cracked up to be. And in Christian circles, we we call this word repentance, uh, where we start to realize that the rebellion and all of the things that we've done on our own because we were big and bad by ourselves, we can make our own decisions. And we come to our senses eventually, and we want to go back towards God, our father. Man, that's a good thing in the start of his journey starts with him acknowledging his present condition. It starts with him acknowledging the present state of where he was. He wasn't trying to pretend that he really hadn't messed up. He wasn't trying to compare himself to other people that, well, I didn't mess up as bad as they did. He simply owned it and said, man, I have sinned against you and against heaven. But where I disagree with him is this. He tells himself that I'm gonna go back to my father and tell my father that, listen, I don't even deserve to be a child anymore. I'll just be one of your hired servants, and I'll, I'll work it off. I'll work really hard, and I will, I will pay you back. See, the son started to believe that his father would treat him the way he saw himself. But what if the father doesn't take his cues from you? What if he didn't take his cues from how other people would see him? What if he had something completely different? Now, here is what the, the best part, my favorite part of the story even though the son is plotting and planning to go back to his father and have this long, drawn-out apology of what he's going to say to win back the good graces of his father, the Scripture says that while he was a long way off, his father saw him. When he wasn't even anywhere near his father, when he was a long way off, his father saw him, and his father had compassion on him. And his father would have been had every right to, 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 to sit on the porch and say, Look at this guy. Would you look at this guy? He has some nerve. After all of this time, he spent all this money and going crazy like this, wait till he comes back. I got, wait till he comes back. I got a mouthful for this guy. See, everybody in the story would have expected Jesus to make that direction, that when the son comes back, the father would put him to work and tell him how wrong he was for all of the things that he did, but Jesus flips the script and, and gives the opposite, and this is the most ridiculous thing Jesus could have ever said. The father runs to him, Throws his arms around him and kisses him. The son starts to give an explanation of all of the things that he had done. Father, I'm so sorry. I've messed up. I've sinned against you, and I don't, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please forgive me. Make me one of your hired servants. So he was convinced that the way he saw himself was the way that his father would see him. The father didn't even let his son really finish. In the next verse, in verse uh, 22, it says, but the father said to his servants, I want you guys to get this, the son is talking to the father, he doesn't even answer him, he turns to his servant, he says, oh yeah, what, okay, cool, hey, bring the uh, fatted, fatted calf, bring the, uh, bring the Yeezys and put the Yeezys on his feet, <laughs> bring him the best robe, because this son of mine, he was dead, and now he's alive, he was lost, and now he's found, so the only thing we can do now is party. Lost, found, party. So this is grace. This is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. This is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. And when Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's telling them a story, he's saying this is how God works. God has the nerve to give people grace. God has the nerve when people mess up. God has the nerve to cover them for their faults. And if you want to judge people based on how well they performed, go ahead. But this is not the way God works. If you want to judge people based on how you see yourselves, go ahead and do that. But this ain't the way that God works. The lost are found and the, and the found can rejoice. God has the nerve to give people grace. And you want to know why he doesn't? Because he loves us. See, God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. That's good news right there. Good. Now, I don't know if you guys caught this in the, in the text, uh, but there's a part of Scripture where it says uh, that the, the Father orders that the fattened calf be brought so that um, they, can, they can celebrate. And here's what I, I want us to get from this part right here. I, I don't want us to, to go past this too fast. Essentially, what the Father is saying is this bring the fattened calf. If you really want to know what it means to celebrate, if you really want to experience the, the, the lavishness, the, the scandalous grace that I'm offering you, you have to have the fattened calf. See, you can't just go in here and you can't earn it, you can't work for it. If you really want to experience grace, if you really want to party, you got to eat the fattened calf. And here Jesus is referring to himself. So he was talking to the Pharisees who understood this old system of Jewish law. And in Jewish law, without the shedding of blood, there was never any remission of sins. There always had to be a sacrifice. And later in Scripture, Jesus uh, Jesus himself is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is pointing to himself. And he's saying that if you want to know what grace feels like, you have to receive me. I'm the fattened calf that was given for you. And this word, if you guys would, uh, would allow me to dust off my semester of Greek, um, there's, a, there's a scripture, there's a word in here for the word kill, and it's, uh, it, it means thuos And basically thuos every time you see it in the New Testament, it means sacrifice. So he wasn't just saying, hey, get the, get the calf and let's kill it, you know, stab it twice in the, in the chest and just throw it on the table. He was saying, get this calf, because this calf is a sacrifice for you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now, when God sees us a long way off, man, he's not sitting back angry. God chose chose to give us Christ the spotless lamb, so that you and I could be redeemed. And the entirety of the Christian message is summed up in these three words, the lost are found and the found party. And it's not about you measuring up to yourself, to others, or to society. It's about all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for you. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for me. And guess what? On your best day, you're not going to be able to add not one thing to it. Jonathan Edwards once said that, uh, we can no more save ourselves than a spider web could stop a boulder from falling. It's all about Jesus. And he's talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to the prostitutes, he's talking to the tax collectors, he's telling everybody, everybody, you're all in the same boat. If you want to, to know what grace feels like, you've got to have the lamb. Now, grace is not an easy thing to accept. Uh, the other son in the story was like, yo, now nah, this is, you bugging, bro you bugging. This dude was out spending all your money on prostitutes. This son of yours, not even my brother, this son of yours was out spending all of this money and he comes back and he just comes back out of nowhere and you killed the fattened calf for him? See, the older brother, the religious one, is the one that I identify with most. See, I want people to feel like they got to pay for what they've done. You got to make it up for what you've done. And this gray stuff, nah, you're bugging. See, the older son had a a difficult time understanding why his father would act so recklessly, and grace, real grace, costly grace, is scandalous. See, it might be free for us, but it certainly wasn't free. See, Jesus paid his life so that you and I could experience freedom. And the only celebration is celebrating what God has done in our lives through Christ. The older brother, like me so much, has a difficult time... uh, allowing other people to experience grace because deep down inside the older son thought just as wrongly about the father as a younger son did. He was convinced that the father would see his brother the way he saw him. He's a mess up. This guy doesn't deserve anything. He's a screw up. He's a failure. He did all of these things and you have the nerve to to lavish him, to give him gifts. That's ridiculous. The older son didn't want to go into the party And the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost. Now he is found. Lost. Found. Party. Now, here's what Christianity is all about. Jesus in our place. Jesus in in, in our place. And the, the wonder of Easter is us celebrating uh, that we, we serve a risen Jesus. And most importantly, most importantly, uh, we can throw away the way we see God and distrust what Jesus says about who God is because you know what? Jesus rose from the dead. Now, the pinnacle teaching of Christianity is not whether or not you like Jesus or not whether or not you like his teachings or whether or not uh, he should have said this or he should not have said that. The pinnacle thing is for you to decide this. Did he rise from the dead? If he did then you should take his view of God over yours. If he did, you should follow him wherever he says to go. And if he didn't, it doesn't matter what he said. Now, a couple things I want you guys to do. A lot of us in here, especially if you're new to church, uh, the the biggest, there's two real reasons that people don't come to church. One, they think it's stupid and they hate it. Um, And two is they think, um, that you have to get yourself together first, and then you can come back to church. Then you can present yourself in a, in a good way, but you got to get yourself together first and then come back. See, I think what Jesus is telling us all is just come home. Just come home. The second you realize, the second you can come to your senses, just come home. You, don't have to, you can write out your little speech on what you want to say. You can do all of these things. That, that, yes, that's great. Do all of that, but just come home. You don't have to try to fix yourself on your own. Come home to a loving father who's ready to sacrifice his very best for you. Now, we have a couple of things that we like to do here at Renaissance. At the end of service, uh, we have people that are up front and that would love to pray for you for any reason. And they would love to talk to you about whatever next step uh, you you might take in, in your faith journey. Or secondly, if you still have your connection card and you haven't filled it out, man, I would love for you to check the box about, it says, getting more information about baptism. And even if you were baptized when you were seven years old uh, and you want to, you know, get, a place, get to a place where you can really wrestle with your faith and engage Jesus in a different way, just check that box and one of the pastors here will reach out to you. But for the rest of us, the band is about to come up and, and play another song. And you know what I want us to do? I want us to party. Yeah. I want us to celebrate all the goodness of God in our lives, and I want us just to go for broke. So everybody, please rise on your feet, and the band is going to play this next song.